Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. You know, Mark, we are at the end of 2022, and this is our 24th podcast. You don't say. Wow, time has flown. (laughs) I've enjoyed this year of podcasting with you a lot more than I thought I would, and I had pretty high expectations. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Because I feel the same. And as it's the end of the year and the holiday season, we kind of wondered if we should do something sort of special to wrap up this year. I think instead of doing any sort of retrospective, let's go with a bit of a twist. Let's talk about the past, but not our past set of podcasts or topics, but rather the past in general. Specifically, the psychology of how humans look at and use the past and how that relates to building the future. Ah, okay. So that means this podcast must start with a specific concept, the one of sunk costs, which is a pretty common term in economics and business, but I think one that actually has some interesting implications, not only in business, but like in politics and even society at large. For those who have led more normal lives exempt from being taught about finance and economics, a sunk cost is a cost that has already been incurred and cannot be recovered. In a classic finance or business context, you know, we're told to ignore sunk costs as they're not relevant to future decisions. And and that is true uh, sometimes. <laughs> it kind of seems commonsensical, but all too often when we make personal financial decisions, we tend to pay attention, often too much attention, to sunk costs we should really ignore. But the topic gets more complicated than that when we think about sunk costs in the context of learning from history. Sometimes history is ignored when it shouldn't be, or alternatively, sometimes history becomes an albatross around our neck, preventing us from making the right decision for the future. That's a subtle but important point, particularly when it comes to history. Informing yourself is not the same as constraining yourself, a difference which we all tend to forget, at least sometimes. So this podcast will be about the past and the future, how people use their knowledge of the past to inform their current decisions, and how and when the past should be ignored or leveraged. So let's dive a little deeper into the definition of sunk costs and give some more examples to help our listeners understand the term. As we said, a sunk cost is one that has already been spent and effectively gone forever. It often arises in a situation after an investment is made where the value today created by that investment may be different from what we earlier thought it would be. That's important because it's only today's value which is relevant to any decision we need to make today about the future. When we analyze a potential financial choice or investment, We should only take into account future costs, compare them to a future potential return, and, if we are utilizing existing assets, only charge the investment what those assets are worth today. What we actually spent in the past is irrelevant, regardless of how significant it may seem to be. This is important because, as we discussed in our very first podcast, capitalism is driven by people and organizations making what we call rational decisions. And such rational decisions can only be based on your current situation and your assessment of future events, the future costs, future benefits, and, you know, any calculation of risk, you know, something we also devoted a podcast to. In other words, only future alternatives should be considered because value itself derives from the future. Everything else is simply water under the bridge. But we don't always follow these rules. And that is actually a studied psychological phenomenon called the sunk cost fallacy which can be described colloquially as like throwing good money after bad. Here's a simple example of that from the business world, which may help clarify things for our listeners. Let's say a company spent $20 million partially building a new power plant. Right now, the value is zero because it's incomplete. To simplify things here, we're assuming it can't be taken apart and sold, say, for scrap. And it will cost another $10 million to complete the project. 
But then, surprise, a clever engineer on our payroll realizes we can build a brand new, completely different plant, which will do everything the partially built plant will do for only $5 million. The new investment should be made, and the old plant should be scrapped. But almost every non-financial executive I've ever met as a financial analyst would hesitate or refuse to make that choice. Yeah, for sure. And this doesn't just happen in the business setting. A classic example in a social context is remaining in a failing relationship because we've already invested too much to leave. And the fallacy doesn't just surface for big choices, too. It could be, let's say I pre-purchased movie tickets for tomorrow night and then tomorrow I get sick and I'd feel terrible going to the theater and and maybe even infect other people. Right. (laughs) But since I already bought the tickets, I may feel compelled to go. But unless I can get a refund, right, or apply the tickets to a different screening, I should not go. That money is lost. Speaking of movies, several times I've stuck with a movie I found totally boring or unentertaining because I already paid for the tickets and invested time watching it. So even dyed-in-the-wool financial analysts like me succumb to this fallacy. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I've personally certainly been guilty of eating way too much at a buffet, right? Because I've already paid for it and I wanted to get the most value for that payment, (laughs) even though it clearly wasn't a good idea. Unfortunately, the sunk cost fallacy can have much greater implications than merely eating too much at a buffet or staying in a bad relationship. It can have real societal costs. Perhaps the most obvious example is when a country continues to fight a losing war because we don't want lives to have been sacrificed in vain, even though we may lose more lives in the future by continuing to fight. Yeah, that's certainly happened through our wars in Vietnam and Iraq, as well as our more recent, you know, war on terror. Although admittedly, it's hard to tell what the world would have looked like if we ended those conflicts earlier. It's a very strange argument to sacrifice more people because others have already been sacrificed in the past. Yet that's precisely what President George W. Bush said in 2005 about the war in Iraq. Quote, we owe them something. We will finish the task that they gave their lives for, unquote. Skeptics saw that as a self-serving argument. The real benefit he was seeking had more to do with preserving his future as a political power. The sunk cost fallacy is so prevalent that it actually has been given different names because of some famous examples. Some people call it the Concorde fallacy because the British and French governments continued to fund the joint development of the costly Concorde supersonic jet even after it became apparent that there was no longer an economic case for the aircraft. Turns out the British government privately regarded the project as a commercial disaster that should never have been started. However, political concerns contributed to making it impossible for either government to pull out of the project. This has another name if you enter a casino, right? Something called the gambler's fallacy or the Monte Carlo fallacy. I love this one, although I generally call it the post hoc fallacy. It's the belief that if a particular outcome occurred more frequently than normal during the past, it's less likely to happen in the future, or vice versa. But unless the games are rigged, that belief is utterly incorrect. So why do you prefer to call it the post hoc fallacy? Because it's been known since at least Roman times and derives from a cool Latin saying, post hoc urgito propter hoc, which means, if I remember a little bit about Latin, after this, therefore because of this. We all think the past is more directly and intimately connected to the future than it generally is. In the context of a game or in gambling, you often hear the phrase, oh, I'm due. Right? For example, believing that the next dice roll is more likely to be a six because I've rolled fewer sixes than expected so far. If I flip a coin ten times in a row and get heads every time, many people will think that a tails is due. But in reality, heads or tails are equally likely on the next flip of the coin. Although in reality, Mark, if you got heads 10 times in a row, it's possible it's a rigged or weighted (laughs) coin. (laughs) So in that case, heads is actually more possible for the next roll. 
That reminds me of a wonderful con I've always wanted to run, which takes advantage of these kinds of human biases and misperceptions. Listeners can read more about it on our blog at www.theboilingfrog.net. Uh, but to be clear, Mark, this is just a fun intellectual exercise, right? You're not advocating using any scam, right? Of course not. And if you try it and get thrown in jail, don't blame me. Okay, so we've given a bunch of examples where people are better off, sometimes much better off, ignoring what happened in the past. But given all those examples, and we just scratched the surface, why in the world do so many of us enthusiastically throw good money after bad? Well, there are a number of psychological and practical factors, right, that cause people to pay attention to sunk cost. Probably the biggest is a psychological phenomenon we've mentioned a few times in this podcast, which is the avoidance of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, right, especially as it relates to behavioral decisions and, and attitude changes. We all tend to go to great lengths to avoid cognitive dissonance, even if it means modifying our actions to maintain consistency with our beliefs. And people will jump through amazing mental hoops to avoid this dissonance, right? Effectively connecting what they may have done in the past to what they'll do in the future in a seemingly logical way. Not to mention engage in outright delusions, potentially even paranoid ones, as a coping mechanism or a post facto rationalization, all to be able to connect unconnectable things. Another explanation for this behavior is what I'll call avoidance of cognitive dissonance light, right? <laughs> Essentially, this is maintaining one's appearance to others, right? By avoiding looking bad and specifically looking like you failed or admitting that you were wrong in, in some way. Many people have a desire not to appear wasteful. Sometimes one ends up throwing good money after bad because to stop investing in that activity would constitute an admission that the prior money was wasted even though the additional spending is, in fact, known to be wasteful in advance. <laughs> right. And you see this all the time in politics, right? Even if you know you made a mistake, you may be afraid to admit it because you feel it could harm your re-election chances, right? Which would keep you from making future decisions you believe are important. Yes, but we also have to recognize that for many politicians, I'm thinking of people like you, Ted Cruz, it's possible to get so entrenched in mistakes or deceit you can no longer do anything else. Enough lies and delusional thinking can end up forcing you to divorce yourself from reality with potentially terrible consequences for you and your community. But there is even a less pejorative version of this phenomenon called planned continuation bias, which is a more subtle cognitive bias that tends to force the continuation of an existing plan or a course of action even in the face of changing conditions. In the field of aerospace, planned continuation bias has been recognized as a significant causal factor in accidents. In fact, a 2004 NASA study found air crews exhibited this behavior in nine out of the 19 accidents that were studied. Often this manifests itself, you know, when someone says, you know, I'm not a quitter. <laughs> sometimes you don't want to quit, of course, right? But sometimes you do have to cut your losses. One of the phrases George W. Bush is best known for is, stay the course. A clear enunciation of planned continuation bias, if there ever was one. And there's a, you know, related bias we have to discuss, too. This is what's called an optimistic bias or an optimism bias. This could occur, let's say, after finding out that investment we made, you know, may not be as good as we thought. We could then sort of rationalize in our own mind the earlier decision by somehow identifying these new additional benefits that have accrued or, or certainly will accrue from that investment. Then again, rational decision-making is almost always done in an uncertain, sometimes really uncertain environment, which limits our ability to objectively assess future value. Maybe finishing that factory could provide option value for something we're not able to quantify yet. 
So being optimistic isn't necessarily irrational. When uncertainty exists in measuring value, it's not illogical to continue with a course of action where you've sunk costs. Mark, there's another structural factor we should discuss uh, that feeds into all this psychology. And I'm talking about specifically in business, right? We have structural ways to keep score, right? This is what we call generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP. Most companies use GAAP and certainly all U.S. publicly traded companies do. Having a standardized system of accounting fills several important needs for business. FTX is the latest terrible example of what happens when you run a business without doing accounting. You lose track of critical information you need to make good decisions in real time. But all accounting primarily does is record historical transactions. It doesn't in and of itself tell you anything about the future, which is what you really want to know when you're making decisions in business. Although you can certainly analyze how past decisions led to past results and then infer what present and future decisions to make. Accounting adds value when the present and the future aren't too different from the past. In that case, historical data can help you discern important things about the future. And within the accounting system, we can also see the issue about sunk costs and the fallacies that can be read into numbers. We brought up an example in our podcast on corruption, right? specifically the difference in understanding average cost versus marginal cost and the mistakes that occur by looking at investments by averaging the fixed costs over every product we deliver, let's say. But as soon as the past and the future differ too much, say because last year you spent a billion dollars building a plant you're going to operate to make money for the next 30 years, the accounting system actually starts to break down because the future no longer looks like the past. After all, you aren't going to be spending a billion dollars every year. I mean, accountants try to work around this by spreading large occasional costs over time through what they, we call depreciation. Right? Although there is value to looking at depreciation, these expenses you know, don't cause dollars to leave the company's bank account. My favorite example of this is something my cost accounting prof in grad school taught us about a consulting gig he had where he was asked to figure out how a new cement plant manager had dramatically improved profitability compared to his two predecessors, both of whom, by the way, were fired for failure to perform. It turned out the third manager's quote-unquote genius was the result of the plant having been fully depreciated on the company's books. He hadn't done anything materially different. He just happened to be the guy in charge when the accounting rules had finished spreading that investment cost for the plant over time. <laughs> Lucky him. Well, that's also why financial people have, you know, different financial measurements besides net income, right? Something called EBITDA, for example, which backs out that depreciation. Financial analysts make these kinds of adjustments all the time. We had a saying in the biz about it. For centuries, accountants have been making adjustments to historical transactions to better reflect reality. While for centuries, financial analysts have been backing those adjustments out of the records to get a firmer grasp on reality so better decisions can be made. So it all goes to show that even in the very measurable world of business, right, the truth is just based on your perspective. <laughs> this discussion about accounting is a good segue into a more general discussion about the relationship between the past and the future and how we tend to misuse or fail to use history. We have been discussing the past in two different ways. In one case, it's about investment and actions that are sunk, right? Meaning not particularly relevant to future decisions. But in another way, the past can be informative to making decisions about the future, right? The trick is knowing, you know, which is which, right? Yeah. As we mentioned a moment ago, in a world that doesn't change too rapidly, a reasonable predictor, maybe even the least bad predictor of the future may actually be the past. 
you know, it reminds me that meteorologists often quip that the best way to predict the weather tomorrow without, of course, having an actual scientific forecast is just to look at the weather today. <laughs> we used to think about that with respect to the climate in general, too. But as we're experiencing right now, that predictive ability breaks down when we do things that cause the global climate to change rapidly. You know, even just reading restaurant reviews on Yelp is an exercise of the past, right? In this case, other people's past predicting your future. But restaurant quality is probably reasonably stable over time. Yes, but the mistaken belief that the past is always the best guide to the future is deeply entrenched among people who ought to know better. Hard-boiled stock and bond investors. It's why every financial prospectus or sales document about an investment is required by law to say, Past returns are not indicative of future results. I mean, these examples illustrate the complicated relationship between the past and the future, and specifically the fallacy of like chartism in stock picking. Yet I have to point out that one of my favorite sayings, because I think it contains a lot of truth, is from George Santayana, who coined the phrase, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Well, and one of my favorite sayings is a corollary to that, supposedly from Mark Twain, who remarked that history never repeats itself but it does often rhyme. Historical experience itself is a form of sunk cost. When you view it in that light, the very nature of conservatism, as we've discussed in a few previous podcasts, is just another form of planned continuation bias, or worse, an avoidance of cognitive dissonance. In the business world, that conservative perspective manifests itself with one of my personal pet peeves, which has happened if I've been a consultant to a business and I ask a question about, you know, why something is done in a certain way. And I receive the answer. We've always done it that way. Right. <laughs> um, besides getting me a little steamed. You know, this is just another example of the sunk cost fallacy. I used to annoy my internal audit friends by asserting that companies should rewrite their policies every decade just because things change and doing stuff the same old way was eventually generally guaranteed not to be the best way. Yeah. And on a larger scale in business, you know, a lot of companies fail because they cling to a narrow definition of their past. The classic example, of course, is the 19th and 20th century railroad business, not realizing that they weren't actually in the railroad business at all, but rather the larger transportation business. And they then missed that larger opportunity. Or the personal computer business, which all the major computer manufacturers of the time missed out on or discounted. IBM famously launched the quintessential PC only because their sales guys begged to have something to sell to their clients while closing deals on the bigger machines where they made all their money. Interestingly, this did not happen with the rise of biotech. The major pharmaceutical companies were savvy enough or lucky enough to get in on the ground floor of what ended up being a major strategic business expansion. Yeah, I mean, that relates to this concept of cannibalization in business, where a company is afraid to enter into a new business. You know, that's often created because of a new technology, potentially, right? They're afraid to enter it because it may hurt their existing business. But if they don't take advantage of the new opportunity, someone else will, and their old business will be harmed regardless. So it's kind of better to do it yourself. But this is really one of the hardest decisions for any business to make. But we also need to remember that there is a reason why history rhymes. And instead of being captive to it, we should look for patterns, learn from our mistakes, and as a result, hopefully make better decisions in the future. In that sense, we don't apply historical data directly so much as we abstract it into something which hopefully still applies in the future. The hard part being figuring out which part of today's poem is rhyming to which poem from the past. And as we said before, humans often have difficulty seeing patterns that truly exist while at the same time seeing patterns that don't really exist. 
Patterns based on history are valuable to the extent the future will continue to involve those patterns. The challenge is what Donald Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns. When has reality shifted so much that a given historical pattern has become irrelevant? That's why in business, for example, we see so much wealth generated when a business is truly disruptive because it breaks those historical patterns. And politics and governance abound in examples of this. We drastically lowered the cost of communication and air travel when we stopped assuming we had to intensely regulate them in order to assure their widespread use. And it's not always about economics. We improved the overall quality of life once we realized it didn't matter, at least to most of us, whether people of the same sex who loved each other could get married. You know, that's a good segue for what we should talk about next, Mark. We discussed how the sunk cost fallacy is due to many factors, right, including the avoidance of cognitive dissonance. And we also discussed how sunk costs are not only about financial decisions, but are about how we use the past, right, correctly or incorrectly, to inform and build the future. And the place where those notions collide the most is, of course, politics. We've discussed in a previous podcast how, as local elected officials, you and I both saw how common it was for our colleagues and our constituents to incorrectly analyze choices by comparing alternative futures just to the past or the present, rather than comparing the alternative futures to each other, including the futures which would occur if nothing was done, which is how it should have been analyzed. We also talked a lot about the avoidance of cognitive dissonance and how that shapes so much of our politics and our sort of sociological norms. You know, it's really an amazingly powerful force. I mean, for example, on our second podcast about change, we discussed how people get entrenched on an issue, even if it's minor. And as I recall, a few episodes later in our podcast on cancel culture, we talked about how social media reinforced that very entrenchment. Yeah. And in one of my favorite episodes, I believe it was our 11th, right, on whether America has gotten dumber. You know, we discussed how politicians take advantage of the power of cognitive dissonance to fuel intellectual stubbornness in the face of overwhelming evidence that conflicts with people's earlier beliefs. Which then led to our podcast on paranoia about a month later. Avoiding cognitive dissonance is a big factor in rejecting truth when a previously accepted false narrative has already been internalized and accepted. We tend to fight like crazy to hold on to our beliefs, no matter how badly they actually fit reality. You know, so if our listeners can remember one thing for this entire year of podcasts, I think it's that the avoidance of cognitive dissonance may be one of the most powerful forces in the universe. <laughs> the strong nuclear force better watch its step. But we have to recognize <laughs> yeah, sure. that politics has a complication beyond the mere psychological, which is that politicians need to generate enough support to get elected and reelected. If you don't win, you can't govern, no matter how great your policy ideas are. And since voters tend not to be forgiving of mistakes, sometimes elected officials stay the course, not for psychological reasons, but rather electoral realities. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point. I mean, it's often their supporters and constituents who are more affected by the avoidance of cognitive dissonance than even themselves. That's a great segue into a perfect demonstration of this phenomena. And like so many other instances of perfect examples of strange political behaviors in our podcast, it involves Donald Trump and the seemingly baffling and paradoxical support he enjoyed and continues to enjoy. You know, in many ways, so many people who support him today can credibly be accused of the same sunk cost fallacy, probably fueled by their desire to avoid cognitive dissonance. Given all the data, now part of the historical fact pattern, that's come out about him. It sure looks like many of his supporters are finding it just too hard to admit they may have been wrong about him and should move on. 
pretty clearly the Republican Party establishment and leadership is also wrestling with this. Right. And we twist ourselves into intellectual pretzels, right, to avoid this cognitive dissonance and do something that our logical self wouldn't do and often isn't even in our own interest. But there are plenty of other examples besides Donald Trump. Continuing resistance to combating climate change is, in effect, failing to recognize when the past is no longer a good guide to the future, because we haven't had the ability to cook the planet until our knowledge of the world and our technology got powerful enough, which just started happening a century or so ago. Yeah, I'll give you another example. I mean, U.S. policy toward Cuba. Basically, we're pissed off at Cuba for what they did in 1958, you know, which definitely wasn't in the U.S.'s interest at the time, of course, right? They seized American private assets. You know, we are afraid of communism spreading in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, that's all fine and good. But it happens almost 65 years ago. Cuba hasn't recently been any threat to us, and certainly not since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. In fact, most or all of the independent analyses that have been done have concluded that tighter economic, political, and cultural connections between our two countries would have been better for both of us, both politically and economically. We are literally leaving money on the table. Yet we maintain still an embargo on the country, despite it not being in our interest and not being in the interest of the Cuban people. And we're also ignoring a bit of the hypocrisy here as the U.S. maintains relationships with countries who are much worse by every possible measure. The ongoing racial and ethnic prejudices that still burden the U.S. also sadly demonstrate this same phenomena. Some of us are still not able to escape historical stereotypes which, in fact, weren't accurate when they were first promulgated and mostly served to reinforce a status quo ante which just happened to preserve pre-existing privileges. You know, here's another one for you to consider, Mark. As someone who is a registered independent, I would argue that even identification with a single political party is another form of sunk cost. But maybe that's a topic for a whole other podcast. I think that'd be a great discussion to have as personally, I think there are today rational reasons for maintaining party affiliation. Another example from politics is the structural advantage of incumbency. People already in office have a much greater chance of prevailing when seeking re-election. Incumbency is pretty clearly just another sunk cost yet it matters a lot in most voters' minds. But I guess this could be explained, at least in part, right? Because if things are going okay, the option value of a new or different perspective is minimal or maybe even perceived to be negative because, as we discussed in our podcast on risk, you know, an unknown that's hard to measure will get greatly discounted. But when it hits the fan, that calculus changes. Suddenly, a new perspective, sometimes any new perspective, becomes quite valuable. You know, which is, I guess, the basis for the old political aphorism, right? Never waste a crisis. Right, if you want change from either side of the political spectrum, it helps to create or promote a crisis to lessen the value of incumbency, right? Happens all the time in politics. In fact, I'll bashfully admit having done just that to prevent what I thought was a poor decision from being made by the San Carlos School Board years ago. On a more personal level, my first election to the San Carlos City Council in 2011 was helped by the general anti-incumbent mood that was then prevailing in the country even though few, if any of the reasons for that mood, had anything to do with the local council race directly. Well, Mark, perhaps incumbency is related to our last podcast on expertise. So let's discuss how expertise is connected to the notion of sunk costs. People who are experts in a particular arena seem to be less subject to the sunk cost fallacy, I think for a couple of reasons. First, their deeper understanding of the area can make it easier for them to spot when the calculus has changed and therefore how historical knowledge can be applied should change as well. Second, they tend to be confident enough in their expertise 
and highly regarded enough by the community to not worry as much about admitting a mistake. You know, that makes me think that maybe a good example of this is when Dr. Anthony Fauci admitted that his original advice on not needing to mask up at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic was wrong. Although, ironically, many saw that admission as evidence of his lack of expertise, even though we know in part he was at the time trying to save limited supplies of PPE for healthcare workers. As we said, politics and public service is unforgiving in many ways. <laughs> but I guess what you're saying, Mark, is that wisdom matters, right? And wisdom helps us avoid the many biases and fallacies around sunk costs and how we use the past. You know, I guess that's why sophisticated and experienced business people really do understand what sunk costs are. And they understand both the benefits and limitations of financial accounting, and they can make more rational business decisions, notwithstanding all the psychology here. I think a better way to describe the value of wisdom is that it gives us the potential to spot when history is no longer as good a guide as it may once have been. In fact, I'd argue that's almost the definition of wisdom as distinct from expertise. Expertise lets you make better decisions. Wisdom lets you recognize when an analysis, even an objective one, may be wrong. Well, that sounds like a good place to begin wrapping up this podcast. You know, let's summarize, Mark, the major takeaways for our listeners. First and foremost, be careful about falling into one of the many forms of the sunk cost trap. You can and should learn from the past, but don't let history constrain your choices about the future, because if you do, you could well end up with a poorer future than you'd otherwise have. And remember that this can happen in all areas of decision making, you know, business decisions, relationship decisions, or even how much to eat at that buffet, right? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, when it comes to decisions made in the past, you have to channel your inner Elsa from Frozen and just let it go. <laughs> Dwelling on the past is often just a flat out waste of time and energy, which is why I always tell people and myself not to obsess about past decisions, even ones I've come to learn were poor or bad, because unless you own a time machine, you can't change them. But you can use them to build a better future. And by the way, if you do happen to own a time machine, I'd like to borrow it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so we're both not arguing to ignore history, right? But just rather not to be a servant to it. You know, history does indeed rhyme and we need to spot such patterns in history to inform us about how humans can behave and how best to think about our alternative futures, right? Based on choices we make now. And as we've argued in previous podcasts, there are all sorts of reasons to embrace change and not think we need to make tomorrow look just like yesterday. Because who in their right mind would actually want to live in a world where the future was never different from the past? I grant you it might be comforting, but it would also be excruciatingly boring. <laughs> I agree. And I think lastly, I think we need to recognize the powerful psychological forces which cause all of us to not critically examine our own past beliefs and actions. The primary one, again, being the avoidance of cognitive dissonance. This one element of our social psychology can literally start wars and destroy societies. And we also need to recognize this is all further fueled by political leaders who have an incentive to create pretzel-like logic to defend positions they themselves may well recognize as indefensible. We see this happening all over the country right now. We need to call out that behavior when we see it, and we need to check it in ourselves. Well, Mark... That's a good place to end this episode and to end 2022 with a hope that we all have the wisdom to recognize, you know, when we need to change course. This year of doing podcasts with you has been a great ride, and I, I look forward to it uh, next year. I've not only enjoyed doing these, Seth, but I've learned a ton from them as well, and not just about how to edit audio files. 
Seriously, I can't tell you how much the work we do has crystallized formerly fuzzy concepts for me and taught me new things that help me understand connections in the good old real world. In 2022, we've averaged about two episodes per month. You know, we had a big backlog of topics, you know, when we started the idea for this podcast and we wanted to get through them all. So it's possible that our cadence may slow down a little bit in 2023, but we're still going to be trying to make those connections among psychology, economics, history and science. I mean, just, you know, like how the psychology of eating too much at a buffet is connected to Putin's war in Ukraine. <laughs> or to reference an, an earlier podcast, how hindsight bias makes you think differently about the meaning of our ongoing gun debate. And because we love making connections, we're always open to topic ideas from our listeners. If you have a subject you'd like us to delve into, drop us a line at topics at theboilingfrog.net. So thanks to our small but loyal group of listeners we've had over this whole year. Here's hoping you all have a happy new year filled with more nuance, more wisdom, and progressivism. And less of the reductionism and tautological externalities and the avoidance <laughs> of cognitive dissonance. Oh, and yeah, less Ron DeSantis, too. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.